Well, if you have your Bible, please open up with me to Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Uh, that's on page 573 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Now, over the uh, last couple of weeks or so, um, leading up to Christmas, Pastor Jacob has been working through the story of Christ's birth in the Gospel of Matthew, one of the most popular texts, I think we would all agree, uh, in the Bible. And yet the events that we read about in that passage, in, Mark, or in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and in the corresponding infancy narrative in Luke's Gospel, are stories and events that didn't arise out of the blue. In other words, the event of Christ's birth were events that were planned before the foundation of the world, and events that were anticipated in the Old Testament. And today we're going to look at just one of those prophecies that looks forward to Christ's birth, that looks forward to Christ's incarnation some 700 years before it actually took place. And so, hear now the word of the Lord, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, I will be reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. In the year 69 AD, about 2,000 years ago or so, a year that's been called the so-called long year by historians, uh, the Roman Empire went through something of a tense period of conflict and civil war. It actually all started the previous year back in 68 AD when one of the most deranged emperors to ever govern Rome died. His name was Nero. And in 68 AD, Nero killed himself and his successor, a guy named Galba, Emperor Galba, became emperor. Now, when word of this event, this transition of power, reached the eastern boundaries of the empire, where uh, two generals named Vespasian and his son Titus were busy leveling Jerusalem and the surrounding area because of a large-scale Jewish revolt that was underway, 
the younger of the two generals, whose name was General Titus, dropped everything to go back to Rome and congratulate the new emperor who had ascended to the throne. You see, if you were among the first to greet the new guy and to, to make sure that he likes you, well, in the end, that would work out on your behalf. And so that was Titus's plan, get the new guy to like me. And so he began his long journey back to Rome to greet Emperor Galva. But on his long way back, a few things happened. First, long before Titus even got to Rome, Emperor Galba was assassinated a few months after he took control in January of 69 AD. And a new emperor named Otho took power of the empire in Rome. But right when that happened, something else happened. Another general in another area of the empire, whose name was Vitellius, decided that now was his opportunity to become empire, emperor, and so he declared himself empire, emperor and decided to march upon Rome and against Otho and his supporters. And a few months later, Vitellius successfully overthrew the second guy named Otho as emperor. And so given all of this upheaval that was going on in Rome, what was Titus? the first general who was going back to Rome to congratulate the first guy who had now died, what was he gonna do? In the midst of all of this up upheaval, he was kind of stuck in the middle and wondering who should he get behind? You see, if you tied yourself to the wrong guy, that wasn't good because their downfall would eventually be your downfall. Well, in the end, here's what Titus did. He decided that with all this turmoil unfolding, he'd go back and make sure that his dad, Vespasian, became emperor, emperor. And a few months later, Vespasian marched on Rome, and he became emperor too. Now, if you found that whole historical synopsis to be somewhat dizzying and confusing, that's because it is. Um, in the history of the Roman Empire, 69 AD was a dark and tumultuous year of political upheaval. It saw, if you were counting, four different emperors in the course of a year. It was a year of backbiting and civil war. And if, like General Titus, you were caught in the middle of all that, well, your next move would seal your own fate as well. You see, your future was bound up in who you supported. Support the wrong guy, and you're not going to have much of a future. But when you think about it, even if you support the winner and this is the kind of environment you call home, how long do you think you really have until somebody comes for you next? Now, on the one hand, the events of that story of 69 AD and the tumultuous time of the Roman Empire are far removed in a variety of ways from our own context. But on the other hand, you and I are always faced, we're always faced with decisions in life like Titus, about who or what to support, who or what to hitch our future ambitions to. Whether we're talking about the world of politics, or our own future ambitions, or even something that's inconsequential as the world of sports, we're always trying to navigate this world and hopefully come out on top by supporting the right causes and the right people. But be that as it may, the Bible tells us that whatever we decide to get behind in this world, whatever alliances we gravitate towards, and however shrewd we are in navigating this environment of competing forces, no amount of skillful maneuvering in the present can give us the kind of triumph that we look for or the satisfaction that we long for. 
You see, the Bible tells us that though there are many good things and right things to get behind in this world, spiritually speaking, we live in a world of sin and unbelief and darkness. And this world could never and will never yield a solution to its own problems. Our only hope then, while we live in this world, is to get behind somebody who is not of this world, but who nevertheless came into this world some 2,000 years ago to triumph over the present darkness. So our big idea this morning is this, walk in the light of the sun. Uh, now we'll talk about the historical setting of our passage, Isaiah chapter 9, in just a moment. But for now, keep in mind that when Isaiah writes what he writes in, here in Isaiah chapter 9, some 700 years before Christ's birth and incarnation, Isaiah is speaking into a bleak and dark situation that's unfolding in his own day. He sees God's people descending into a time of darkness and gloom. And yet in the context of that, he also looks forward to a future day where he sees a dramatic reversal on the horizon, a reversal that subverts expectations. And so as we look at our passage, we'll see first how Isaiah describes this reversal as glory that overcomes gloom, and then how he explains this reversal as deliverance that overcomes bondage. So if you have a worksheet or you're following along, those are two points that we're going to be working through. First, a description of how glory overcomes gloom in verses 1 through 3, and then an explanation deliverance overcoming bondage in verses 4 through 7. Most commentators break this passage down in those two parts, and so I'm following accordingly. And so let's begin with seeing how glory overcomes gloom. Now throughout this passage, again, keep in mind that Isaiah is looking forward. He's looking forward to a future day. He's standing in about the 700s BC, and yet he's looking to a future day on the horizon. But to appreciate the descriptions that Isaiah provides of that coming day, we have to first appreciate when he says what he says. In other words, we have to appreciate something about the historical context in which Isaiah is prophesying. And as we'll see, it's a context of doom and gloom and darkness. Understand that in the lead-up to what Isaiah tells us here in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet has been speaking from Isaiah 7 through Isaiah 8 and now into Isaiah 9 into a particular situation that was transpiring in Judah during the reign of King Ahaz. That's A-H-A-Z, King Ahaz, as around 734 B.C. You see, at that time, King Ahaz and the kingdom he led, known as Judah, were faced with an inter, a kind of international turmoil of their, of their own. You see, immediately to their north, an alliance was forming. Actually, an alliance had already formed between two nations, between Syria and the ten northern tribes of Israel. And this new alliance that had formed just north of Ahaz decided to put Ahaz and the kingdom of Judah in their crosshairs. 
In fact, they were intent with overthrowing Ahaz and the kingdom of Judah. And as Isaiah is writing what he's writing, those armies from the north are already on the move. They're already pressing down southward, taking over city after city in Judah, intent on overthrowing Ahaz and his kingdom. And so Ahaz is faced with the potential loss of the kingdom he governs. And he has a choice to make. Would he get behind the Israel-Syria alliance so that they would stop attacking him? Perhaps he could surrender to them um, while he still has time left and promise to pay them tribute so that they wouldn't attack him any longer, kind of like paying the mafia for protection. Or on the other hand, maybe, Isaiah, or maybe, maybe Ahaz decides rather than allying himself with that alliance to turn to the real superpower of the day, a nation known as Assyria, and get behind them so that they would offer him protection from this alliance forming in the north. In short, Ahaz is faced with a decision about what alliances to form, about who to get behind so that perhaps his kingdom that was under attack would be spared. <clears throat> but before he makes that decision, the prophet Isaiah comes to him in Isaiah chapter 7, and he pleads with Isaiah not to get behind anyone. Rather, he tells him to forsake all of these worldly alliances and the geopolitical wheeling and dealing that's going on in the day, and instead look to the Lord and trust that the Lord is going to deliver Judah from international threats near and far, just like he's always done throughout their history. But does Ahaz listen to Isaiah's advice? Well, no, he doesn't. Instead, and we would find this out if we were looking at Isaiah 7, he proceeds with forming an alliance with Assyria, and though it saves Judah in the short term, ultimately it's a decision that would lead to the devastation of his kingdom. First, after he makes that decision, Syria and the ten northern tribes of Israel would be devastated by Assyria, the superpower of the day. And that might have been good news for someone like Ahaz, who was only living in the short term by what he could see. But after Ahaz is gone, later in history, after he dies, well, Judah would suffer at the hands of that superpower too. And throughout Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, in the lead up to Isaiah 9, the prophet Isaiah looks forward to the future, and he outlines the consequences for rejecting the way of faith that he held out for Ahaz. Isaiah announces that because many in Judah, including the king himself, have rejected the way of faith and have chosen instead to live in the short term by what their eyes could see, the nation as a whole would be plunged into deep darkness and gloom. But even in that darkness, here's the good news. God would preserve a faithful remnant, a portion of his people who still trusted in him, who were marked not merely by their national identity as Israelites or Judahites, but by their spiritual identity as a people who hunger and thirst for the Lord and for his promises. And for people like that, and here's where we come to the burst of light in Isaiah 9, verse 1. The day of salvation would eventually dawn. Look again at verse 1 where we read, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. There will be gloom after Ahaz. Gloom will set in for the nation of Judah. 
But Isaiah is looking beyond that at this point. And he says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Back in the early 1990s, and some of you might remember this, um, one of the most dangerous cities in the world was Medellin, Colombia. Um, in fact, at the time, I think it was labeled the most dangerous city in the world. Uh, during the heights of Pablo Escobar's drug cartel, which was based in Medellin, the city had something like a murder rate of nearly 400 murders per 100,000 people. It was by far the highest in the world. And to give you a comparison, the highest murder rate in the United States today is St. Louis, which is about 64 murders per 100,000 people. So that was, you know, doing the math, something like eightfold what St. Louis is today. Uh, moreover, the poverty rate in Medellin in the early 1990s was something like 50%, and the infrastructure of the city left much to be desired. But after Escobar's death, the, the city underwent this incredible transformation. Um, the homicide rate plummeted, the poverty rate fell too, and, and over the course of the next few decades, Medellin has been transformed into what one publication calls it the, one of the smartest cities in the world. Now, of course, all cities have issues, Medellin included, but the transformation that city has undergone in three decades is truly remarkable. Well, when our text opens in verse 1, we hear Isaiah announce an even more remarkable transformation than that. He tells us that the lands to the north of Judah and Jerusalem, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, would be transformed. Now, this was land that was originally settled by God's people all the way back in the book of Joshua. And the people of God who lived there, the Israelites who lived there under King David and under King Solomon, they flourished in that place. But after Solomon died, well, that land quickly became a land of idolatry. False worship sprang up on the mountains of Zebulon and Nephtali and the surrounding regions, and the land became a setting for international conflict. It was eventually land that was devastated by Assyria in Ahaz's own day. And we learn in the Bible that after Assyria devastated the land of Zebulon and Nephtali, they carried away the Jewish population that lived there and then repopulated it again with pagan Gentiles who didn't worship the Lord instead. In God's providence, Assyria, was, Assyria turned this land into a place of deep darkness and gloom in more ways than one. And yet Isaiah looks forward to a day when that depleted and dark territory would be the first to be transformed. But of course, the kind of transformation that Isaiah envisions in Isaiah 9-1 has nothing to do with the implementation of any social or technological program. It has nothing to do with any kind of earthly glory whatsoever. Rather, Isaiah sees transformation of this territory because God himself is on the move. Understand that whenever we hear about light, breaking into darkness in the Bible. It's nearly always associated with the presence of the glory of God. For example, the psalmist proclaims in Psalm 104, verses 1 through 2, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. The advent of light into the world then is nothing more and nothing less 
than the emergence of God's presence into the world to dwell with his people and to deal with the dominance of spiritual darkness that had overtaken not only the land, but also the world. But as Isaiah looks forward to this day, the advent of God's glorious presence, well, he tells us in verse 3 that this really has nothing to do at all with a geographical plot of land. Rather, it has everything to do with what this will mean for God's people. Look at verse 3, where the prophet Isaiah proclaims, quote, You have multiplied the nation. <clears throat> you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Again, Isaiah is peering forward to a future day, just like he was in verses 1 through 2. And, and, and as an aside, what's interesting is that throughout these verses, these first three verses in Isaiah, he sees these events of the future as so certain that he actually speaks about them in the past tense. He did that when he spoke of God's presence back in the land, and now he does that again when he talks about the effects that this has on God's people. So what is the effect that God's presence has on God's people? Well, first he talks about the multiplication of God's people. Remember, in Isaiah's own day, as he's writing this prophecy, those who were actually looking to God by faith were few. It was a, maybe a small remnant among the people of Judah and Israel who actually believed in the Lord and loved the Lord. But in the future, Isaiah tells us when light breaks through the darkness, he sees a dramatic increase in numbers. And not only Jews, but also pagans from the nations would soak in the light of God's presence. Remember, because of Assyria, those northern regions became a mixture of Gentiles and Jews, which is why Isaiah calls them here Galilee of the nations. But when light arrives, when God's presence breaks into human history, well, he paints this picture where even a remnant of the Gentiles will be transformed from a people of unbelief to a people of faith. God's people then, we learn, when God's presence arrives, would swell numerically. They would spread out geographically, and we only need to read through the book of Acts to see how that takes shape. And in their growth, we also learn that their joy would increase too. If you're looking at the imagery of verse 3, it, Isaiah likens the joy of God's people when God's presence arrives to that of a farmer after a bountiful harvest. I'm not sure if you farmers are joyful right now or what that joy looks like, but that's the kind of joy that's envisioned here. And then he pictures that likewise as, as joy of a victorious army dividing up plunder after a battle that they won. But that leads to the question, why? Why are they so joyful? Why are they filled with such joy? Well, very simply, the joy of God's people is conditioned by nothing other than the fact that with the advent of this light, they now dwell secure in the presence of God. When I was a kid, <clears throat> my parents were, were kind enough, year in and year out, uh, to take my sister and I on a number of great vacations. Um, and often, one of the places we would go to was the happiest place on earth, Walt Disney World. Now, as a kid who, who was spoiled and got to go to Walt Disney World fairly often, 
you would think that I would appreciate the thoughtfulness of my parents and the sacrifice that it was to take me there year in and year out, and that as a kid, I would have simply just appreciated being at Walt Disney World, that that, that would have been enough for me. But if that's what you're assuming, then you've never vacationed with kids. You see, without fail, every time we went on one of these extravagant vacations as a kid, e even to Disney, it was never enough just to be on vacation. I always wanted something more. I remember one year in particular as a kid that there was this toy Davy Crockett rifle that I saw in one of the gift shops, the gift shops that Disney strategically locates just to drive every parent crazy, and I had to have it. Uh, for days in the so-called happiest place on earth, all I thought about was this toy rifle, asking my parents for it every five minutes and unable to find any semblance of joy in the so-called happiest place on earth until I held this overpriced faux wooden rifle in my hands. Talk about needing to shift my priorities. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think this also captures how we too often live in God's world too. You see, when we become Christians, I think many of us can attest to the fact that God was enough to be in his presence, to be in his church, and to study his word might have felt like drinking water from a fire hose. It was a lot, but it was also a satisfying place to be. But at some point, we settle in, and we often begin to obsess over comparatively insignificant things. Remember, in verse 3 of our passage, God's people are rejoicing with exceedingly, exceeding joy simply because they're in God's presence. Their joy isn't conditioned by anything else other than God is in their midst. Friends, that's a game changer for God's people. That's everything in dictating our joy in the Christian life too. But is that enough for you? Does that reality by itself produce joy in your life? Or is your joy conditioned by a host of far more insignificant factors? If you profess Christ, let me ask you this. Do people know you by your joy? You see, one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. And we're called to be known as God's people for our joy. And so do people know you as someone who professes steadfast joy in Christ? Or are you, on the flip side, Known more as a critical curmudgeon, as a bitter killjoy, always upset about something and always with an axe to grind. Now, of course, that's not to say we need to fake it when we walk through real suffering in life and when the world feels like a two-ton elephant on our back. But even in suffering, the Bible tells us that there is a profound, not superficial, but substantive joy in knowing God, in being in his presence, and in trusting that our identity as sons of God is rooted and secured through the work of Christ. Friends, it's true that we live in an angry and scared and delusional world, but we're a people who don't belong to this world. We don't think like this world. We don't relate with each other in the backbiting and exhausting way that citizens of this world relate with each other. Our joy is not and cannot be conditioned by anything in this world because if it is, it's understandable why we would be a miserable kind of people. But we have what the world does not. And so let me exhort you with this. Don't so obsess over the scraps of life 
that you fail to appreciate the feast that's laid before us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Find your joy, real joy, substantive joy in Jesus Christ. So Isaiah describes this future day when God's glorious presence would powerfully break into the world and his people would flourish in quantity and quality as a result. But when we turn to verses 4 through 7, Isaiah puts meat on the bones, as it were, by describing for us more about the character of God's presence in the world and more reason that we have to be a joyful people as we pilgrim in this world. And so this leads to the second point, deliverance that overcomes bondage. Now, when we turn to verses 4 through 7, if you're looking at your Bible, you may notice that in verses 4, 5, and 6, Isaiah begins, at least in the English translation, with this word, for. The idea here is that in each of these verses, Isaiah is explaining both the nature of God's advent and the reasons we have to be a people of joy. And in doing this, he gives us three what we'll call vignettes. Three pictures to explain God's advent as our deliverance out of bondage, uh, the bondage of darkness. So let's take a look at these three vignettes. And first, look at verse 4, where Isaiah tells us that through the advent of God's glorious presence, God's people are delivered from bondage. They're pictured here as a people who were once pressed down with a wooden bar on their necks. That's this idea of a yoke with a rod in the hands of a taskmaster used against them. This symbolism pictures God's people living under an oppressive burden, a burden that, that clearly goes beyond merely physical things. But when the light arrives, what happens? Well, this burden is dramatically broken. Notice that the relief they experience is also likened in our passage to the relief that was brought about by Gideon, in the book of Judges. That's what this reference at the final line of verse 4, when we hear about Midian, that's what that calls to mind. If you don't know the story, in the book of Judges, when God's people, particularly in the north of Israel, the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, uh, were oppressed by the Midianites, God raised up Gideon to deliver them. But if you were to look at the book of Judges and read in Judges 6 through 8 about that deliverance, you would find that Gideon's triumph over Midian was by all accounts unexpected. It subverted expectations because the Lord called Gideon to go up against Midian with only 300 men. And yet through that unexpected band of men led by Gideon, God saved his people. And in the same way, Isaiah tells us that the deliverance that God's advent brings will come about in an equally, actually an even more unexpected way, a way that subverts expectations. But we'll have to wait until verse 6 to hear more about that. Second, in verse 5, Isaiah tells us that through the advent of God's presence, it's as if a war has also been won. The imagery is that of a military, military equipment being burned by fire. But what's, what's important in this imagery is that at no point in Isaiah's forward-looking future picture that he gives do we hear anything about God's people actually fighting a battle or winning a battle. In fact, the only picture we have is that of God's people enjoying the end of a battle that's already been won. As Alec Moter puts it, quote, they have entered the battlefield only after the fighting is done. They win a victory without actually fighting a war on their, on their own. 
Now, these two vignettes, the one in verse 4 and the one in verse 5, are both helpful for us in explaining God's advent. They explain the character of God's presence and what it means when he breaks into human history. They explain the reasons that we have to be a people of joy. But when we come to verses 6 and 7, the final two verses in our passage, we also come to the vignette, the picture, that holds everything else together. This is the one in verses 6 through 7 that explains the victory. This is the one that explains the nature of the burdens lifted, and this is the one that puts flesh and blood to the coming of God's presence into the world. And unexpectedly, at least for those hearing and reading this in Isaiah's own day, the climax of deliverance is a child. Talk about deliverance through unexpected means. And yet in this child, we find that God himself has come. Notice in verse 6 that there are four names that are ascribed to this child. This is a famous passage. It was read for us earlier. We kind of all, 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 most of us probably all know what these titles are. We read Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, each of these four names, when you really get down to it, would simply be inappropriate to give to any ordinary child. Even a child who's born into royalty, because each one of these titles are packed with notions of divinity. Let's just look at two of these. First, the title Wonderful Counselor may seem tame on the surface of things. It may seem as if this is simply somebody who doles out pious and positive advice, and that's about it. Kind of like a motivational speaker of sorts. But that's not at all what this title suggests. In fact, one commentator named Paul House opts for a translation, Wonderful Planner, because this title points to one who plans supernatural things and then carries them out. It has nothing to do with somebody who just sits on high and doles out positive advice that you can take or leave. In short, the language here suggests that this child is vested with the knowledge to plan redemption and then the authority to carry it out. The next title, Mighty God, suggests even more clearly that, that, than the first, the divinity of this child. This is a child who embodies the power of God in his person, who, who defeats the enemies of God, and then, like God himself, is the rightful object of worship for the people of God. Understand, then, that the descriptions and the titles that are given to this son point to a ruler that the world could never produce on its own. This is one who represents perfectly God's people before God and who in turn perfectly rules over God's people as God's true king. It's no surprise then that Isaiah 9, this passage that we've been reading and studying and preaching on, is cited in Matthew chapter 4 at the outset of Jesus' public, public ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles and applied to Jesus. And it's no surprise that Jesus, in his incarnation, is described in, Joel, in John 1 rather, as light that had broken into the world. John 1.9 tells us of Jesus that true light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, has come. The future hope that Isaiah declares then for the small and faithful remnant in his own day, living in darkness, living in gloom, has nothing to do with political deliverance from an international enemy. 
It has nothing to do with anything earthly whatsoever. It has nothing to do with getting behind the right earthly power or the right earthly king or the right earthly kingdom. Rather, the ultimate hope that Isaiah holds out to them and us is Jesus Christ, the one who's dealt with our greatest enemies of sin and death and the devil, and the only one through whom, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, transfers us, his people, from the domain of darkness to his own glorious kingdom of light. Friends, the gospel tells us that the things this world values, things that may have a veneer of wisdom and power, things that we might be really tempted in our own lives to invest all of our capital into, are ultimately things that are powerless to do what we really need from them. But so often, the world pulls us into thinking that our ultimate hope depends on what we get behind in this world. You see, these metaphors of light and darkness, metaphors that we find all over the scriptures, are also commonplace elsewhere in life. Uh, typically, when the world wants to baptize something as good, even if it's not good, it's associated with light. And anytime the world wants to identify something as evil, it cloaks it in the metaphor of darkness. For example, the Philadelphia Eagles are a team of light and the Dallas Cowboys are a team of deep, deep darkness, and that's true. And yet the Bible tells us that the, the true light, the true light that has come into this world has nothing to do with this world. The true light is not found in what looks powerful in this world. Rather, it's found in what the world considers lowly and despised. It's found in the one who was born to a teenage girl from a backwater town in Galilee of the nations on the fringes of the most powerful empire in the first century A.D. By all accounts, the light that dawns in the first century A.D. in Jesus Christ subverts expectations in a plethora of ways. And yet in this child lies the power of God. Friends, like General Titus and Ahaz before him, we're often driven by angst about being on the winning team. After all, nobody, nobody wants to be on the, quote, wrong side of history. But the Bible pleads with us to vest our hope not in anything that this world values, but in this child, Jesus Christ, the one who stands at the center of human history and the one who stands at the end of human history. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, let me ask you this. What alliances in this world are you banking on right now? And how's that working out for you? You see, the Bible pleads with us, as do I, to ally yourself above everything else with God's King, Jesus Christ, through faith alone, because that is our only hope in this ruthless and dark, dark world. But at the same time, this passage calls all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, to check our allegiances and to align ourselves or realign ourselves with the true light and the true king. It also encourages us to, and this is what I want to leave us with. That is, just as we do not seek salvation from anything that this world offers, so too do not despair the apparent dominance of darkness in this world. You see, there's much in this world that could distress us if we let it. And I don't think I need to say that, but I'll say it. When we look out into our neighborhoods and into our worlds, 
we see that the darkness of sin and unbelief hangs over everything. And then we turn inward and we examine our own hearts and we see our own sin. And when we do that, how many of us have cried out with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? But while there will always, always be much to pray for, and there's always much that could drive us to despair, understand that the light of the glory of God's presence has already broken into this world. The church has already spread abroad all across the world and continues to do so to this very day, even in places that we would identify as places of deep darkness and persecution for the church. The Spirit, we know, is also actively at work in the church, actively at work even in our own local church, in our ministries, at work in our members, and all of us are learning day by day what it means to walk in the light of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that the light has already dawned, and far from disappearing or fading into the night sky, the Bible looks forward to the day when Jesus Christ will come again in his second advent, and the light of the glory of God will be so bright that sun and moon will no longer have a purpose in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 has something to say about that. Again, there's much we could despair over in this world. But brothers and sisters, the first advent that we celebrate has already come. The second, I promise you, is on its way. And in the meantime, the Lord our God, through his spirit, is in our midst. What alliance could be any more consequential than that one? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for what Isaiah looked forward to, that we look back upon, that is the advent uh, and appearing of uh, your glory in your Son. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus Christ was and did everything that Isaiah looked forward to in his own day. And Lord, I pray that as we walk as sojourners and exiles in this often dark world, that you would help us remember who we are and whose we are that you would help us correct any um, bad allegiances that we have with this world, and you would instead realign us day by day with what is true and what is right and what is good. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.